Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes, that very strange and weird music that haunts my dreams. <laughs> does it really? Does it Does it haunt your dreams? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, it's just a little uh, instrumental introduction to another Books of the Year podcast. It's another podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. And you know what I was, I was thinking about this on the way in is, you know when you go into bookshops and often the books will have... Like, I don't go into bookshops. Do you not? All oh, right. No. Okay, so when people go into bookshops yes. and you see little stickers on the front and they say this book was shortlisted for X prize yes. or, or or whatever uh, pick of the pick of the week for that uh, I think our podcast is the it's this little sign of quality of yes. uh, looking for a book this is worth your time so um, I think so yeah. so we're a radio we're a kind of podcast sticker yeah 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 is that right absolutely we All should right. get stickers that's the, the thing is if you next. I don't go into bookshops because if they've got copies of my books yes I think well, why haven't they sold? <laughs> right. And if they haven't got any of my books, I think, well, why haven't they got any of my books? Do you do you do that thing of rearranging where your book yes. is and putting it in the in a different section? Yes. I've I've heard of authors. Fifty p and under. Take <laughs> right. <laughs> Re- the recommended. Yeah. If there's a table that says recommended by staff, okay. I always, if there are any, <laughs> yeah. remove them and place them there. Place them right in the middle. Yes. There you go. Get rid of Robert Harris <laughs> yes. and put my books there. No, it's just, it's just, you know, I come out feeling glum. Oh, so, right. <laughs> no, I don't think, unless I absolutely have to. Right. Uh, email from Bruce here. Um, he's in Exeter. I heard you talking about book tokens on a recent episode, and I thought I'd let you know I'm a big fan. I still buy them for presents and often receive them too. I love them. In fact, I recently spent one on Simon Seabag Montefiore's The World, ah. which I'm working my way through and very much enjoying. What a massive term that is. Mm. Don't get me wrong, receiving, the bo- receiving a book as a gift is a wonderful thing, but there's just an incredible joy, indescribable joy, in going into a bookshop armed with a token with the whole shop at your disposal. Long live the token and the podcast. Well, maybe I'm just seeing this incorrectly, and if only I were to be given a book token, yes, it would, uh, I would then reimagine my book buying experience exactly because you could only spend your book token in a bookshop you can't just and i think there's something to be said for you know back in the day obviously now you can buy your books you know on amazon online wherever but back in the day when you were giving a present you could just give cash of course 
but we chose to give book tokens because it was sort of, no, 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 spend your money on this. And so, you know, I, I think that still exists. I can't remember the last time I spent a book token, but I'm starting to warm to the idea. Could I, could I spend my book token in the coffee shop? If the, so if the book... Wow. So if it's got... Uh, a nice little coffee shop and a croissant. Could I spend the 20 quid on three coffees and three croissants? I tell you what, why don't you try? Okay. And can I be behind you in the queue while you're talking to the person behind yeah, the counter saying, you're, no, I'm a man of great patience. Are we in Waterstones or not? I want to pay for my croissant. Um, this from Ruth, Simon and Matt. I've trusted your choices ever since you recommended The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne. It's definitely one of my top three books of all time. Uh, he is now one of my favourite authors. Keep up the good picks. That is exactly why we are here, Ruth. Of course. And um, so get in touch if you fancy. Uh, books of the year at yahoo.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter, books at Books of the Year. We're also on Instagram and threads at Pickney Page. I'm still on threads. You still are? I mean... Yeah. I, I'm also on Blue Sky. I don't you, think we're on Yeah, Blue Sky. no, I need to inquire about because apparently now you can just go on Blue Sky, can't you? Yeah, Riff Raff, to... welcome. Yeah, Riff Raff. You don't have to be invited. <laughs> you don't have to be a friend of Stephen Fry to get on. No. Uh, so, no, no, I might, I might get uh, get onto the Blue Skies, yeah. Any... <laughs> I mean, don't rush. No, know. no. Uh, right, let's talk with our special guest today who has just flown in from Michigan, as you're about to find out. Books of the Year with our uh, very special guest author this week who has just stepped off a plane, uh, flown in from Michigan. She is Kylie Reed. Hello, Kylie. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, is it like the middle of the night or early morning or how are you feeling? I'm, I'm feeling the adrenaline is good. You know, yes. I'm excited to be here, but I do think it is four in the morning, my time. <laughs> <Okay>. All right. <laughs> yeah. So now some sometimes I always did lots of um, early radio and as in early in the morning radio and i was always it's a bit like going on going on air whilst drunk because all the normal kind of inhibitions they're gone you just you just say all kinds of crazy you stuff you have no idea what's going to come out <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah exactly um so uh, the new book is is come and get it it has a spectacular cover can i just say before we get it so kylie is um booker longlisted author plus also the uh, assistant professor at the university of michigan that's correct. So, uh, so you're going to carry on doing that because you're now an international best-selling author. So, the University of Michigan thing—that's going to have to wait, isn't it? Just, <laughs> I think you're going Don't to tell to, them that. You're going to have to step away. Uh, my students would not love to hear that. I'm, no. I have in my bag right now um, thesis projects as well. So, not yet. Oh, really? Yeah. What sort of what kind of what kind of thing do they send you? Um, a little bit of everything. The one that I'm reading right now is a dystopian novel. A lot of students come in saying, I'm a short story person, I'm a short story person, and then they have a meeting with me and they say, I think I'm writing a novel, what do I do? And I'm like, that's the normal part of this <laughs> okay. process. So a lot of novels as well. All right, so while you're away, you're basically still being a, a professor. 100%, okay. yeah. All right. Never mind their work, let's talk about your work. Um, <laughs> Kylie's book, uh, Come and Get It, Matt, describe the cover, please. Yes, so, uh, well, the background, we're, we're looking at two colours here that are going to jump out of your uh, bookshelf. So green and gold, I'm going to say. Is that what kind of green are we talking Is that sort of, I was going to say lime green, but I'm not sure lime green is right. Well, how would you, what kind of green would Perhaps you say? Perhaps some mint green. Mint there? green, That's far good. better, well done. Is well, good. Oh, it's almost yes. like Kylie has a way with words, <laughs> yes, isn't it? Really? Clearly, yeah. So uh, mint green background. 
background. Come and get it in uh, blue and gold, in big, bold uh, lettering across the top. But your eye is also drawn to a little piggy bank in the bottom left-hand corner of the of the front cover with uh, some gold coins dripping into it. And then Kylie Reed's name, a new literary star, says the Times, best-selling author of such a fun age. And, and this is slightly different from your... Uh from your American cover, but this, the thing, the advantage of mint green, mint green, especially with blue and pink, is that it does jump off the shelves. You'll be able to see that the Kylie Reid book is is in from about, you know, 100 metres away. It's correct, yeah. It's a bold cover. I, we looked at a lot of different covers for inspiration. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Some of John Updike's covers were a bit of inspiration there. Really bold font is what I wanted from both covers. And the little piggy just does a lot in terms of University of Arkansas and money as well. Yes, well, money and University of Arkansas, uh, we'll get to. Uh, it's it's in, the kind of subliminal message that a book cover sends out is so important in I terms agree. of even if you don't want, you know, we all we all do judge a book by its cover. As we should. I, I think it is your first step into teaching a reader what the vibe of your book is about. So I absolutely think we should judge a book by its cover in the United States. That is where I have the diva moment, and I think that we saw about a hundred covers before we we came to this. A hundred, I think so. I like that. Wow. Okay. So, what is the vibe then? Before we get into the the words, what's the vibe from this cover? Do you think? I think that there is a superficial gloss to this cover, and I think that the book in college works the same way, almost like a mall. This promise of of luxury on this cover. And I think you see some hard work here within the piggy bank. And I think some people are going to learn that hard work does not always pay off the way you think it does. Okay. All right. So that's the vibe uh, from the cover. Uh, Introduce us to um, Agatha and Millie. Sure. And also, I guess, Kennedy, does Kennedy get equal billing Equal billing here? She, sure, she deserves a Okay, stuff. well, in, introduce <laughs> us to, uh, to your book and tell us about some of these key sure. characters. Sure. Come and Get It is about three diff- very different women who come to the University of Arkansas in 2017, and they're all trying to get very different things. Millie, our protagonist, wants to become an adult. She wants to have a job, have a house, and these kind of surface level um, symbols of adulthood and growing up. She is a fifth year senior and kind of wants to correct her quote unquote older status as a 24 year old student at the University of Arkansas. Agatha Paul is a visiting professor who just had a breakup from her wife in Chicago and she's looking to have a bit of a year where she can do whatever she wants and get over this relationship. And Kennedy is a little bit more of a minor character who has a very dark secret and she's looking to start over. Okay. So um, right at the start of the book, Kylie, um, Agatha is planning just uh, say why has why has she turned up and what is she hoping to do? Because she's talking to students, she's interviewing students uh and then the content of what the students are saying takes her in a different direction. But what does she arrive wanting to do? Yeah, so Agatha Paul is a writer and journalist, and she has two other books, one about coming-of-age traditions across the the world, and the other is about funerals and grief and the body's response to grief. So she believes that she's going to the University of Arkansas to start her research on weddings in the South. But very quickly, she becomes interested in how these young women talk about money and navigate money and shifts her focus to a bit of campus culture and and finances within young adult life. What is she surprised about? I believe she's surprised about how 
how much people will reveal in these conversations, um, the cruel and classist things that people say. I think she's surprised to learn about scholarship status and how much money the young women make and what their parents do and how they get money. She's she's also just drawn to their energy and thinks that I, I believe this is a line. She doesn't want to be friends with them, but she wants to listen to them, and she does. Yes, um, and uh, at the risk of going too far uh, into the book, there's a, there is a but I think it, I think it is relevant. She kind of monetizes this because she starts a relationship with with Millie and their friends to start with, but then she starts paying her. That's correct. She pays Millie to act as a stoolie and to sit in Millie's room while she eavesdrops on the other the other people there. And if you're thinking that sounds unethical, that's 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what could possibly go wrong? What could go wrong? And it's been really fun to do uh, a press for this because I talked to a lot of journalists and they're they're stewing about how, how incorrect and wrong all of this is. Um, the young women did sign um, releases in the beginning, but they don't later. And in this place of post-breakup, Agatha says, you know what? I've heard of other people doing this. I'm just going to do it. What could go wrong? And, and of course, something always does. Mm-hmm. You've brought you've brought up um, money there, Kylie, which is um, which obviously runs throughout the book. And there is um, there is one thing that I that it jumped out to me because it, it makes an appearance a couple of times in the book, and that is an origami twenty dollar bill. Mm-hmm. And it struck me when 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 it appears of how we have found ways, sophisticated ways, to alienate people. Whereas um, in years gone by, we would be very open about uh, alienating someone with what we say, what we do. But an origamied $20 bill feels like a very... It felt like a really, I'd say, sophisticated way of saying, mm, you don't belong, or this is my little message to you that uh, I believe I'm a little bit better than you. I think that that's absolutely correct. It's a very cute way of showing someone you, I can pay you to do things and you will behave in the way that I want you to. And it also comes from Tyler, who's a young woman in the mm-hmm. dorm, who is actually one of the few working class characters within the novel. I wanted to explore how money works across a bunch of different planes. And Tyler, while she is working class and has a job and doesn't come from a wealthy background, her father's incarcerated. She has a cultural cachet that she uses and wields her power in a very interesting way. And so she has another roommate who buys way too much stuff and is using her money incorrectly. I wanted to focus on the notion of spending properly. I'm putting quotes around that. And Tyler is an example of someone who, within the world of a dorm, knows how to wield her knowledge about people and what you should and shouldn't have and and knows what to do with her stuff. And she often turns people into her stuff as well. And so I, I should explain as well, the first time this sort of origami $20 bill appears is when she gives it to to Millie. And as a reader, when that first happens, you're like, why are you why are you giving her money? Mm-hmm. And then you realize, oh right, this is this is your little way of saying you're doing something for me and I know something that you'll value, and that's this twenty dollar bill made mm-hmm. into a little origami shape. Mm-hmm. I know who you are, I know what you value. And I'm going to cash in on this later as well. Um, $20 bills kind of float around this book as a promise, as a secret, and almost as a threat. And 
I wanted to, I wanted this dorm to be a hothouse of exchanges between people um, and a language that, that can't be replicated in any other way besides that dollar bill. It made me feel my time at university was very, I was very unsophisticated, you know, and I never, you know, it was just like another world yeah, yeah. altogether because the government gave me my grant at the beginning of the term and that was, that was the money that I had. Mm-hmm. And when it had run out, then it had run out. And mm-hmm. maybe I called my dad and said, can I have some extra money? But that was it. I, we didn't think, about, no. I don't know. If I had any money left over at the end of the week, I'd buy a record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. right. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, so your students are way more sophisticated than I am. I would say that the range that I saw, I interviewed a lot of different students and I asked them all about their money. And I actually wrote about it in the foreword of The Great Gatsby now that it's in the, the public domain. I interviewed students because I was just interested about where they got it, how they got it, because the range was just so wildly different amongst so many students. Students who were on scholarship as RAs, working their butts off. Just explain RA. Sorry, an RA is a resident assistant, which is a student leadership position. So you, quote unquote, have 30 residents or so that you're in charge of. Mm -hmm. So that means that you're planning events for them. If they get lonely, they're coming to you. You're doing roommate mediations with them. And it's a very menially paid job. I had the position for a year. And it's it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. You're on call all the time. So you have students who are doing that and paying for their room and board. And then you have other students who are making $700 a, a month or so from their parents. When I interviewed a group of students, I was asking them how much money they get and how they're, they're, they receive it from their parents. One young woman told me, oh, my dad is a dentist and I technically work for him. And me and my brothers get a practice paycheck from his office. Practice paycheck. Practice paycheck. And I said, okay, but it's real money though, right? And she's like, yes, but we don't do anything. Of course we don't. We're not irresponsible that way. I was like, but... Okay, I said, I'm, I'm just making sure that sounds like fraud. It is right? definitely fraud. It's <laughs> and definitely she said, oh, no, no, it's totally fine. And that went straight into the it first does. chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is right there. The That was so emblematic of how different different students, range, like their financial status could be, that I wanted to include the notion of a practice paycheck for some students, while other students are very much working for their money and receiving little $20 bills that are making or breaking their week. Yeah. So money kind of shapes everything. I, in this I book. think so. Yeah. So is it, could we see this as a kind of a critique of campus? I would say I was going to say campus capitalism, which makes it sound like a work of political science, which it is not. Um, at no. all. But is that in your back of your mind? For me personally, when I read a novel, entertainment is first mm-hmm. and foremost. I think novels are meant to entertain and, and lose yourself. But I'm, I'm also not really interested in novels that aren't having an opinion on the world that we live in. What helps me is to identify the limitations within a book, and then I can let my characters misbehave as much as they want within it. Understanding that some students have to be on call for other students that doesn't quite seem quite fair, but it's positioned as like, what a great opportunity. It can go on your resume and this is so great mm. for you. Um, I think it's a critique of the systems that students are placed in. Um, at the same time, yeah, it's not really my bag to, to have a polemic argument within my yeah. fiction. The plot is way more important to yes. me. Yes, and, and it is hugely entertaining. And I think one of the most thrilling things about the book is your dialogue and um, – if, I think if I was one of your students, I'd be very careful about what I said and yeah. how I said it. <laughs> yeah. Because there is something about the rhythm 
and realism of your dialogue, which is breathtaking. You know, mm-hmm. I, and and very very few books I can that I can think of where I, thought, I feel as though I'm actually in the room. That that is always my goal. I love books that call on themselves and kind of fold over. And in the first chapter, you realize this is a book about listening to other students. And that's how I wanted the reader to feel that they're hearing people in the next room. I love people talking the way people do in in real life. I think it's heartbreaking and delicate to see the starts and stops and the, yeah, oh my gosh, I don't know. And you you guys are podcasters, so you know, like when you're Mm -hmm. transcribing um, people's um, dialogue, we do not speak well. <laughs> yeah. We're going in and out and we have little, you know, verbal ticks all the time. And it was a definite game to and choreography to make sure I include those little idiosyncrasies. Some of them or all of them? Because because some because often dialogue in books is not a trans it's, right. it's not a transcription, is it? Because it can that could be very annoying. Exactly. That's the hard part is there's a lot of yeah, no, oh my gosh in this book, but there's maybe that's maybe a tenth of what people are actually saying in the real world. So I include those things to a point because I don't want it to become grating to a reader. And just one question about accents uh, when you're doing dialogue. So some there is uh, an accent where you write phonetically um, so that it's it's tough for an English person to to get the right accent anyway. But what is your when? How much do you allow us to? fill in the voice in our head and how much do you steer us with some of your characters? So there is one character named Casey who appears in maybe five different chapters and she is from Clark County, Alabama and she has a southern accent. And I do spell one word that she says when she says I'm, I spell it um, like A-M whenever she speaks. On a surface level, that is a literary technique that I can allow her to speak with other characters without telling you who is speaking and interrupting with she said, he said, and you know exactly who is speaking. On another end, I think that including that for Casey colors her in a way for the audience. That being said, in the first chapter, Millie is talking about how she overheard someone call her ghetto. And she says, you know what? People hear what they want to hear. And while there is not one big message of this novel, I do think that that is a central point, that people are going to hear the accent that they think that they're hearing. This is not, Casey's not a cowgirl from the Wild Mm. West. She's just a young woman who speaks with a Southern accent, who's actually very academically ambitious as well. And so I can't go into everyone's home and read it properly the way it's in my head. Um, but the way that she speaks to me is a young woman from the South who's in college, and that's it. Certainly, I, the dialogue really felt um, authentic to me. That's and I know we've, we've had, um, I remember we had Lee Child, we've had Lee Child on a, a number of times on the podcast, and he um, made a point about dialogue in books. Um, he said, basically, dialogue in books never works because uh, people don't talk like the dialogue. As you've already said, people don't yeah. talk like that in books. However, this was the first book where I read where I like, oh, no, no. This is exactly oh, how bad. people talk, and certainly, listen. I don't know what it's like to be in a in a in a girls' dorm in, a, in an American university, but thank it certainly felt. That. Yeah, thank goodness <laughs> for that. Um, but it certainly felt authentic. Um, complete um, switch. I want to talk about probably my favourite scene in the book, and I'm sure as an author, you will get um, people saying, "I love this bit in the book. I love that bit." So my favourite scene. 
um, is in, it's basically, it's the restaurant from hell. It's a meal in a restaurant where um, we've already talked about um, Agatha and her wife Ruth have gone out for a meal with um, uh, husband and wife. Um, and um, and basically, it played to every prejudice I've got against dancers. I'm not a massive <laughs> fan of dancers. And oh my God, they love talking about themselves, do the dancers. And, uh, and, uh, the 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 wife in this other couple that they've gone for a meal with has been for a, um, uh, an appointment with a gynecologist who asks her questions that she takes massive umbrage with. But uh, as Agatha points out, actually it's fine. Now the reason why I loved it is because we, as a reader, are very much in Agatha's corner. Uh, we are finding these dancers as unbelievably irritating <laughs> as she is and I, I, I basically i did you did you have fun with that have i massively brought my own prejudices here and perhaps no. taken a little bit too much well, into i'm gonna it. be careful because i definitely have dancer friends which is why i think i wanted to write <laughs> about them as well i'm so glad you enjoyed that scene as well that was one of the first scenes that i wrote of really? the book yeah that was definitely in the very beginning stages when i thought i wanted to write about agatha I love a chapter that takes you back and shows where someone has been. I don't know if you read Freedom by Jonathan Franzen. Yes. There, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was yeah. a chapter in yeah. the beginning of that when it showed the couple's relationship in college. Uh-huh. And I think that the feel of that really inspired that chapter. I really loved it. Um, Robin, Agatha's wife, is a very sexy, hot dancer and she knows it yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she's she's had this big break from her dancing company and she wants to find her footing again and she finds herself at dinner with this couple keisha and ryan and they're just they're a bit annoying and basic and as agatha starts to see her relationship crumble she says i'm going to ruin this evening <laughs> and so i love a ruined dinner I love when someone says what everyone is thinking, and I wanted to keep a really close third POV with Agatha in that, and and it's uncomfortable, and I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, yeah. at one point she says, I'm going to take this tea light that's in the middle of the table, and I'm going to put it in my mouth. I'm going to put it in my mouth. While you're talking, yes. and look at you while I do <laughs> but it. But haven't we all been there? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, I think that my, one of my favorite podcast episodes was about the things that you're not supposed to talk about because they're boring, and I had Keisha hit probably five or six of them. Yeah. <laughs> Can you um, explain balayage? Have I said that sure, right? Yes. It's, 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 this is a, a, there are a couple of sort of fleeting moments, but I'd never heard. I did have to look it up to see what it looks like. I personally love being pulled to look something up in yes. a book, so I'm, I'm glad that happened for you. Balayage is a, a very trendy and expensive hair coloring technique. That in the book, I think Millie rightfully calls it Christian girl hair. Christian girl hair is exactly what yes. I wrote down. Yes. <laughs> it, it sweeps of color within your hair, and it was a big trend in 2017. Okay. If I was one, again, if I'd <laughs> one been one of your, spy, one of your students is thinking, is reading this thinking, that was me. She, was... <laughs> she definitely got that. And it's called balayage. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Have you heard, had you heard no, of that? Not, not before this book, no. 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 Uh, is there significance in the University of Arkansas why you chose it to be Arkansas? I did. I lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas for a year around 2016 and 17. I was applying to graduate school and then I moved to Iowa. Fayetteville is interesting for a number of reasons. Number one, it's just lovely. I love it there. I was just there for a reading. It's an incredibly walkable place. It has four true seasons. It's the kind of place at the time when I was there, I was working at a coffee shop and I had girlfriends there, and whenever we would go out at night, I could put $10 in my pocket and know that I could get two or three drinks 
that night. It was that kind of place. Um, Fayetteville is also really interesting because it's geographically Southern. But in all of my interviews with Southern people, they would say, oh, Fayetteville, that's not Southern. That's that's different. Clemson, Auburn, those places are Southern. Fayetteville's different. And I think that that liminal space is really interesting to me. Another thing that I wanted to do with this book, I'm obsessed with normal characters. I want characters who work at the corner store, who work at UPS, who go to state schools. I think when you think campus novel, you often think Ivy Leagues, mm. top of the top, academic you know, competition, but most school people in the United States go to state schools like the University of Arkansas. So it was a center that meant something different for every character. Millie loves Fayetteville and wants to make it her life. Agatha sees it and she's like, this doesn't count. I can do whatever I want. So I felt like Fayetteville was a liminal space that meant something different to all the characters and I wanted to revisit it again. So you're talking in a country where private school and public school means the same thing. A public school mm. is a fee-paying school yeah. and a private school is a fee-paying school. Yeah. But say, saying state school is exactly right because people, everyone, everyone will understand because yes. that's not. Can I ask you to read something? Sure. Because um, this is about Kennedy. It's just, it's, um, it was the bit where we go through Kennedy's room. Okay. Uh, sort of down there and over the page. Just because I just, th I, would I would love to hear it in your voice, but also just sure. uh, in terms of um, going into someone's room and sort of judging them instantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the stuff that they've got there. I had a host read this this exact passage the other oh. day, and she called me a maximalist about it. Okay. So we'll see. All right. Millie knew it was Kennedy's side of the room, not just because Tyler had warned her, but because of the two large pillows monogrammed with letter K's. Kennedy's space was an overwhelming embankment of recently purchased items in neutral yet feminine shades, a faux sheepskin rug, white, white wicker baskets, a stack of velvet hangers, Throw, throw blankets wrapped with matching ties. There were four boxes of string lights, an unopened box holding a mini chandelier. There were lawless piles of leggings, jeans, and sweatshirts. Wide neck tops meant to function off the shoulder. In the middle of the room was a wooden kitchen cart filled with coffee paraphernalia, a box Keurig, a bowl of Nestle half-and-halves, a mini trash can. A placard said, Rise and Grind. The mess of newness went past Kennedy's bed and spilled onto the dorm-provided desk. A porcelain unicorn for hanging jewelry. A DVD box set of friends. Corkboard, shower caddy, an empty picture frame. There were also a ton of statement necklaces and canvas art to be hung. The one Millie could see had petals and flowers. Beneath marigolds it said, Bloom where you are planted. So maximalist. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> okay. If you can believe it, this novel was probably 200 pages longer when I first turned it in, and most of that was stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so the novel of stuff. My editor rightfully pulled me back. Um, in the uh, acknowledgments, I think at the end of the book, you you suggest that Agatha and Millie and Kennedy all came for, all had different origin stories. I think they all came from different books. They did. Yeah. You just explain a bit about it. Sure. That. I think most of my novels come from a conglomerate of what I'm experiencing and enjoying at that moment. I knew I wanted to write about money, and my husband gifted me a book called Paying for the Party, How College Maintains Inequality, written by two sociologists. And it's a five-year interview study 
where the sociologists kind of lived on a dorm and interviewed young women there and followed them from freshman year to beyond. And the dialogue was so intimate and delicate, and they very academically track, you know, the money that they have and the opportunities that they have and beyond and, and who college works for. And so I was interested in that component, but I also just liked the idea of academic women interviewing young people, and that's where Agatha came from. Uh, for Millie, I read a book called Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics by Lester Spence. That's some title. It's a great title, and it's a great book. I feel that it's very rare that someone can cover that much ground from slavery to civil rights area and the definition of hustle culture within neoliberal politics. Um, there's a chapter where they depict a faith and finance summit, a big conference about finances and family and, and doing great in your job. And this pastor-like character encourages the audience to chant back to him, I am a millionaire in the making. And there's something really haunting about it. And I wanted to plug that into Millie's hustle culture. And then I read a book called Monoculture, How One Story is Changing Everything by F.S. Michaels. And instead of talking about capitalism, she calls it the economic story and talks about how money infiltrates six different specific aspects of our life. And the way that she described how we are paralyzed by so many choices brought me to Kennedy. I wanted her to be someone who... Whose room you've just described. Whose mm. room I just described, yes. Who has no idea who she is and what she wants and can't stop buying things to fill that void. I do enjoy reading books where I occasionally have to stop and look something up, okay. like the balayage hair. Uh, I years ago interviewed uh, James Lee Burke, um, who writes fantastic crime novels, usually set either in Montana or in Louisiana. And you have to stop all the time for, for his dialogue, apart from everything, all, the, all the food choices, all of that stuff. But we're just talking about book titles. He wrote a book called The Tin Roof Blowdown, yeah, yeah. which is fantastic. It has a quote from Bill Clinton's on the front going, his best yet. <laughs> and then you start reading, then you start reading his back catalogue. And he had a book which was called, and I hope I've got this right, In the Electric Mist with Confederate Dead. I thought I would read that book. Oh, I yeah. would take that off the shelf and go, yep, I'm, what, I, don't know, I don't know where that's going to take me, but that's, but that's absolutely fantastic. I wonder how you, whether you're conscious of a line of, particularly if you're, uh, you know, if you're writing for uh, folk in the UK, of explaining more or going, no, actually, it's fine. If you're interested, you can look it up. Are there any changes for the UK edition? We were concerned about the RA title being understood here. But it's funny because I think it is becoming a lot more popular. But in graduate school, I had a professor who talked about not doing safari like like stories, like not saying, okay, so now she's doing this because at this place we do this. It's much better to just show people how they are behaving in the real world. I like it when a novel just drops me in. So I feel like I'm privy to something that I, I shouldn't be seeing. So I don't like to explain too much. I remember in copy edits, there's a moment where I have someone saying, I, I think you should join AKA. And the copy editor wrote, what is this? You need to describe this. And then later in the scene, she said, oh, OK, I understand. It's a black sorority. You need to explain this up front. And in my mind, the fact that she mm -hmm. made it there shows that I actually don't need to explain it up front. And I did not correct it. Um, I think if someone wants to know what that is, they can Google it very quickly or they can trust me as a writer that I will take you down that road and you'll you'll understand what it is. So I do think there are quite a few things here for people mm. to Google, but that's that's what I like to that's, read. I had an American – I wrote a children's book which was published in America and the American editor wanted – and it's it's set in 
the UK, and there's a brief section where they're spending money, so they're spending pounds. And the, and the American editor said, could they be using dollars? And I said, well, <laughs> the, only, the only issue there would be it, it's in Britain, and, <laughs> we, that no. and we don't use dollars. So it's, but in the end, it just became like a, a, an exchange of cash. Mm-hmm. You didn't want anything that would put off an American... Right. <laughs> I have to say my heart sank at that point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really? too. I mean, Should we change all their names and the location yes. as well? Will that make it just a little easier for you? <laughs> I, I think with... Uh, so when um, Simon had you reading that um, section from the book, you you learn a lot about the character just from that. And as you say, that she's she's trying to fill this void. She's buying stuff that doesn't go, that you you, you lump it all together and, and, and hope that that will transmit to everyone else, look at how sophisticated I really am. I want to go back to something that we sort of touched on at the, towards the beginning of the interview, which is how your students view you now, given these books, where clearly, <clears throat> bluntly, if I were your student... I would be watching very closely what I said. I'd also charge you. For, I'd also charge you forty dollars. I definitely <laughs> want royalties right. on the book. Um, I, 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 right, number one. Obviously, your students are reading your you're reading your work. Um, what conversations have you had with them? Because somebody must have brought that up, saying, "Are you are you taking what I'm saying? Are you are you running a tape somewhere?" No one's ever. I think they're afraid. Really? <laughs> well, oh, okay. I will say this: any student that I interviewed was extremely excited at the idea that something that they said would go into a book. Okay. Um, as far as my, my interviewees are concerned, I had to have full excited consent that they would be excited that something would go in to the, to the novel. My students do not talk to me about my work, and I really appreciate them <laughs> doing that. It is a separate thing. A lot of them came to my reading, which was really kind, and it's nice to see them there. But but no one has talked to my work, and I hope it never, ever happens. I am teaching a class right now called The Workplace Novel, and we are talking all about workplace novels and, and what work is. And there's three components, and the first is listen, the second is analyze, and the third is learn. So for the first 20 minutes of class Every week, I bring in a different type of worker. So I brought someone who works at a boarding school for girls. I brought in a book work, bookkeeper. I brought in a publicist. And I asked them a series of questions and hopefully model good interviewing skills. And then the students write about it for 15 minutes. So they know this is a huge part of my process. And hopefully they're taking some of that as well. I think a lot of students are writing a pretty autobiographical novel and don't know what else they're going to write about. And I hope my class shows them that you can be curious and and find other stories besides yourself. Yeah. Write about what interests you rather than what you know about. Um, We're going to talk more with Kylie on our Q&A podcast, which will be uh, with you in a few days' time. Uh, Kylie Reid's book is called uh, Come and Get It, Kylie, for the moment. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. 